But when the Queen Mother was over 100 years old, she was still worried about her daughter, Princess Margaret, who was dying of cancer. You would have thought at 100 you could retire, <laughs> but you can never retire as a mother. <laughs> that never happens. It's, a, it's a, a change in life that happens to you as a young woman that is the rest of your life <laughs> and can never be. And the shame, the bitterness, the joy, the happiness are all caught up in the children that you have born and your life is so heavily affected by it. And so what the young, older women is to train the younger woman is, is in self-control, that Titus 2 passage. Wise up the women to teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children. The maternal instinct is not enough. There are some children just so unlovable. You've got to learn how to love them. Uh, I still believe the grandmother's kitchen table advice is generally the best counselling that's available. I don't want to overrate it. I mean, counselling is important and I've used counsellors for all kinds of people and it's wonderful that we've, we've developed such skills in counselling and all kinds of things like that. But you know, a lot of it's created by dysfunctional ways in which we've been raised. And indeed, when you talk to the counsellors, they ask you about your family first thing, don't they? That's, that's where they, they always start because how you were raised, how you were treated as a child, how... But it's not just mum and dad, it's grandma, grandpa, uncles, aunts. It's the network of family life that creates who you are and how you are. And the mother is in particular someone very important, very, very important. Frontline is so important in how she treats her children, how she raises her children. So then turn next heading, next page to the children of the rectory. And I want to deal firstly with this subject uh, that the overseer, his children, are believers. Uh, the children believe is a challenging verse for many. As, there's, as if the heartbreak of seeing your kids go off the rails isn't great enough. To be told that you are not fit to be an overseer in a church is a double whammy, isn't it? And so we try and find our way around this text. Never do that. Don't avoid the unacceptable. <laughs> That's what the Pharisees do. I pretend to read the Bible, but I only accept those bits that agree with what I already thought. The rest of it, I try and find the loophole to get around. As soon as we start asking questions like, how old is the child a child that has to be a believer? We're asking the Pharisee question. At what age is a child a child? And we're asking that only so as to excuse ourselves from the challenge that God's word has given to us. Why do we seek to resolve a difficulty by changing the meaning of the text? Rather, resolve difficulties by changing the meaning in your head. That The text is saying what it's saying. So, how do people understand this? Well, some people challenge the question of children, the age of the child. Some question the challenge of the word believers because it could mean they've got to be faithful, reliable, trustworthy people, not necessarily believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't like either of those solutions because I know that both of those solutions are coming out of the desire to avoid what the text is saying rather than actually saying, well, what does it mean? But you look at it in uh, Titus, where I take the Titus 1.6 version, which is, I think, the harder one, Titus 1.6. It says, 
If anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the change of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He mustn't be arrogant and so on. But notice what's being said. Not to be... They are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. That's the alternative to being the believers that he's talking about. He's not saying they've got to be believers in the Trinitarian statements of the Apostolic Creed. He's saying they've got to be believers, not insubordinate. He's talking about the character of the children rather than the content of their epistemology. It's, it's not the same thing. And when you go across to the 1 Timothy 3.4 version, it talks about they must be submissive rather than talking about them being believers, which is the same way of I just explained what Titus 1 is about. That is, if you're going to be overseeing God's household and your children are running wild, then you are not someone who can manage. If you can't manage your children, well, how on earth are you going to manage God's household? It's about your management skills, not about the theological understanding of the children. That, that's, is being, that's what the story is about at this point in time. But so it does set for us a goal to aspire to. So then let's turn to, to the privileges and problems of the Christian family. I, raise, I, I ask these questions of the young clergy families and this is the kinds of things that came out as I summarise it. Um, I ask them Tell me the three good things and the three bad things about being raised in the rectory. My daughter, both my daughters, sorry, both our daughters, are really cranky when people ask them to give talks on how hard it was to be a clergyman's daughter. Uh, what were the difficulties of being raised in? Because they were to say, it actually was good, it was great, we're really privileged. But people assume that it's bad and hard and difficult and so they set the question up all wrongly and in fact one of them refuses to talk on the subject unless they are going to say I was a clergyman's daughter and it was fantastic she'll talk on that subject so even getting her to admit three things were bad was a little difficult she was one of the ones I asked um, Helen and I don't talk about raising children for lots of reasons we don't want to claim more credit than is due God is at work we don't want to set ourselves as a model. We did what we did our way, not necessarily the right way. We don't believe there's only one way to raise children. And actually, if anything, I think we're, we're agreed in opposing any system of child raising. Any system that says you do this, 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 and your children will turn out right is wrong by definition. It just, uh, we're not training dogs, we're raising children. Right? It's a different thing. And we don't want to add guilt to parents by saying, well, this is what we did. Oh, you're not doing that. It's like my brother and I have agreed many years ago that we will not read more than one book a year on the subject of raising children because we cannot cope with any more guilt than that. So it's the limit of your guilt tripping. In fact, mine's only about one every five years. I just find all those books just make me feel guilty. They don't actually help me much. However... There are some universal principles which tend to be obvious and so Christians don't say them. Uh, though pastors, we need to teach them. That is, uh, parents 
have to and inevitably will teach their children. You can do it by word of mouth and sit down with a curriculum or you can ignore it altogether but they will learn from you. Where else are the children going to learn from? They will. Uh, teaching them God's word is just what we should do. How do you teach God's word? I don't care, just do it. I mean, there's 65,000 ways of teaching God's word to children. Just check the one that fits you and your kids. I mean, we tried all kinds of different things and some worked at some periods of time, others worked at other periods of time. Leading little ones to God we did for about a year or two, didn't we? Which was really great little book on systematic theology we did for a couple of years with them. And it worked. But it had to do with those kids, these parents, at that age. Another age wouldn't have worked. You know, we tried the Scripture Union Daily Bible Reading Book. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was just because the little one just wasn't up to the level of education necessary to be able to get in. And when you got one of the three children being disruptive, the whole thing failed. So we just kept on. Helen used to use the arch books. Remember the arch books? Who can remember the arch books? Yes? Good. Throw them away. They're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> Helen got so annoyed with them, didn't you, love? They just... Just, they twisted the Bible all the time. It was the story, but with a twist, with a twist. So she gave that up and just read the NIV to them. Although she now confesses that she left out some of the spicier parts of Genesis uh, and the like. I thought she just read all of it, but no, she was a, a censor of God's word. So... <laughs> uh, Um, one of the uh, all the children that I spoke to are adult children they all spoke of the privilege of being taught every one of them said one of the good things one of the three good things was they taught us Christ they taught us the word of God we were inculcated with Christianity one of them said they just all saw the benefits they said it was terrific to be able to have my questions answered by someone who knew what he was talking about uh, obviously it wasn't my child um, and th that sense of just learning a Christian worldview from the that was that's they were all very positive about for some there was a conflict in values between the importance of of some things their family stood for that they saw as in conflict with what they were being taught. So for example, you really have to succeed in education. That was really important when in fact what they were saying was you've got to be godly. But the implication of doing well at school was very high even though it didn't fit into the system that they had. And so the trouble with kids and raising kids is they can see through our failures and hypocrisies so clearly, can't they? They see it more clearly than we do. Second topic, have you ever noticed they all say the things you don't want them to repeat? Um, the second topic was the frequently raised was the rector's visitors, the rectory visitors. So first was just family life, great benefit of being so Christian. I'm stopping now. Anyone want to contribute to that point and say, yes, no, there were, this was really good, this was bad, in terms of getting Christian values from their family, yeah? Um, I think one of the benefits that's underestimated is um, all of the people that come through rectory, like guest speakers and, you know, being able to tie yep. those yep. places together under their kitchen table yep. and people pretend to fall over and all those kind of things. But just having 
people like that rub shoulders with your kids. Yes. And they've yeah, expressed appreciation for that. Yep, that's coming under my next topic. Yep. Sorry. No, no, it's right. That's absolutely right. Yep. Um, because I grew up grateful for my upbringing, one of the things that I have prayed for my children is that they will grow up with grateful hearts. Yeah. For, yeah. For the good and the bad or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Thanksgiving is deep in the American culture and totally absent in the Australian culture. And so when Christians are raised and raising to be thankful and be, have gratitude, you're actually raising children quite different. And I've noticed the teachers at our grandchildren's schools commenting on the fact that our grandchildren say thank you. Apparently other little children don't say it these days as much, but all three families have taught their children that. Yep. It's an interesting. Um, yep. I think there's benefits too in you know just being part of a, a church family where you're getting regular teaching from God's word that's really good. Yep. You know what I mean? It becomes the air you breathe. It just it has a big effect at the time. Just hearing if your dad's a, a Bible expositor. Yep. Does it reasonably well? It's, it's a great benefit at the time. That's right. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Our kids notice those that didn't notice them as well. Now that's an I'll come back to that, yes. So, yeah. Next heading, we'll come back and say that again. I think um, the opportunity to talk about worldview, you're watching stupid shows on TV and just making comments yes. and helping them be discerning and think Yeah, they don't know it, but our families have a more worldview, intellectual, uh, concept of things than the average Australian family does. The average Australian, they watch the television. They might make a comment, don't like them. But we actually interact in discussions. Now Christians do that. Clergy Christians in particular do it. And they express this thanks that they just raised up inculcated with a Christian worldview and taught the Bible properly and taught how it worked and they, all the ones I spoke to, now they're Christian, remember, so the ones who have dropped off the back I wasn't talking to, they all spoke positively about it. Moving on, the rectory, point B is the rectory visitors. Uh, they nearly all raise this issue. It's very, it's, it's a whole range of things about the rectory visitors. Uh, there, are, there are special visitors and there are general visitors. The general visitors, I mean just the congregation, just the people who are there. They spoke about the joy in the number of interesting people who took interest in them. And people do take interest in them from the congregation. Possibly too much at times, but they take interest in them. And there was sheer pleasure they described in just knowing so many adults, uh, knowing so many honorary uncles and aunts who enrich their lives by playing games with them, by taking them to places to... But, they felt the privilege of being in homes which were full of people. Now, Sol Ensel used to be the Professor of Sociology at New South Wales University and many years ago he did an analysis of Australian society in which he said that the average Australian home had nine visitors per year, nine different visitors per year, of whom seven would be relatives. Well, you know, we have 70 for breakfast. <laughs> 
we're not the average home, you see. At this point, the clergy kids are in a totally different world, a world full of lovely adults who take interest in them, babysit them, look after them, care for them, and, I mean, there's a danger to it, but by and large, <coughs> the overwhelming experience of them is, is, is rich. Um, and I know my... my uh, uh, I can see in our children uh, that they still speak of uncles and aunts. Um, and so Ruth was Chapo's goddaughter. I think it's his, his only goddaughter, if I remember correctly. Uh, and in the book on Chapo, you'll find a couple of pages written by Ruth about Uncle John. Because Uncle John used to take her and her couple of her children out to, to uh, they lived in the next door suburb, he used to take her to lunch in his last two or three years of his life and Uncle John was her uncle, <laughs> John. And uh, now in one sense he was everybody's uncle, but Ruth would tell you but he was really mine. <laughs> there was that sense of, because there were special visitors and this is where one of the areas of course where Chapo's life was so different to uh, most others, wasn't it? There were special visitors as well that come by the home and these special visitors, they were pleased to see the genuineness of faith in these special visitors, although a couple of them mentioned me how displeased they were to see the hypocrisy of some of the great preachers who came by the home as well. Uh, which is a little scary, that is you and my brothers and sisters, when we visit other people's homes those little ones are watching and if we are known as the Christian pastors and the great speaker who's come to speak at the church they are watching and their sense of you now again our children I mean, we had a privileged situation because of where I was at at the University of New South Wales but you know Don Carson sat and discussed maths and science with Matthew my son when Matthew was doing science, because Don's first degree was in science, and Matthew was Don was occupying Matthew's bed at the time. Uh, Matthew was off in another room, you see, sleeping, and Don Don took care of uh, this young boy. Now, these days, Matthew's a New Testament scholar, and he writes articles and sends them over to Uncle Don to have a discussion with him. I mean, what rare privilege! And he knows that's what he's not one of the people I ask, but he knows that kind of rare privilege. Uh, uh, our South African friend um, Frank Retief, he was a children's worker, Frank. Well, he was a delight to have in your home. He just, he just took over the kids. He forget the adults. So he was down with the kids straight away, like in a chapo tying chapo's shoelaces under the bed. But he was there. He took particular interest in our Rachel. He sent her videos from South Africa and kept up contact with her. Yeah. It's a small thing in his life, but a huge thing in a rectory kid's life. And the non-rectory kids don't get that. There's a real privilege of the interaction with important people. I played cricket with those two back in the early 1970s in the back garden of the rectory at Gunnedah when doing a mission, right? And it, it's just, you have connections with people. They still think that it was terrible because this man who preached the gospel came and cheated at cricket in our backyard and hypocrisy. <laughs> However, in the comments about them, they didn't like the visitors also coming for uh, 
uh, well, there were three reactions that I thought were valuable to share with you. Uh, one was uh, that it was it was not always easy, and uh, it was not always uh, helpful to them. One bloke said, he, you know, he'd come out of his bedroom, he'd be just in his pajama shorts and in bare chest, and he'd walk into the kitchen, and there's mum counselling somebody in the kitchen. He said, I never felt like I could even walk to the kitchen without there being somebody else around about and embarrassed. And home was difficult because there was always this sense of I never had a private space. Yeah, depends on how the lecture is laid out and things like that. And good rectories do have family areas as opposed to public areas, but it is a problem for kids, for some more than others. That one is the other side of it. That is, a couple of them said, as an introvert, I hated the fact that there were so many people in our home all the time that I had to speak to. Another one said, as an extrovert, I love the fact that there were so many people at home that I had always had the opportunity to talk to. I guess, Mum and Dad, you've got to work out your children, haven't you? You've got to be listening to how they're coping with the inclusions of people. Um, I remember Helen used to do Bible studies uh, with students after church on Sunday night. She looked after the kids at home. Uh, I ran the church then some of them would come down for the Bible study at our home by that time the kids had gone to bed but after a while the kids grew older and they didn't go to bed and then the home life was not working they were so we stopped having Bible study after church in our home on a Sunday night because the kids they needed this their time didn't they with mum at night so it, there's no one answer there's just an understanding of what is happening in, in the place. Okay, tell us about the rectory visitors because I think this is one of the great joys. Certainly every one of, the, every one of them responded on this issue. It just was the big thing about being different to other kids. I thought it was having me stay with you, but okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> having missionaries stay with you. Yes, no, no, absolutely, isn't it? It gives a big worldview. Big worldview. You had a map of the world on the on the wall, didn't you? Yeah, I can never. Absolutely, because Aussies tunnel tunnel vision. You know, they don't know anything outside, just here. But Christian kids, we know a lot more. Rectory kids, you actually meet people who have lived elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Good. We prayed, I mean, we had again a privileged position because of the university and a lot of the missionaries came from our. So they, they were the kids' babysitters who had gone on to more college and now were missionaries and they'd come back at home and so on. You could actually talk to the the people. They we prayed regularly for missionaries. It was easy to do because they knew them as people, not as just out the front. We had a funny situation in our home when the kids were growing up in that one of our children was very sensitive. It didn't seem to be, but he was. But um, he learnt to, and you know, he liked people and stuff, but he learnt to, to do his sign to me. So time out go, needed. Time out and go into another room and say, it's time for me to go home, Mum. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I'd say, yes, Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, another visitor, maybe more prevalent in the country, 
country is your door knocking and help type of person. Yes. Uh, which can be very odd hours and often. And that, that's always a hard one because the kids, it, it's good in one sense that they see that and they see you uh, dealing with that and, and um, being gracious, but at other times um, it was scary and uh, the sense of I can't leave the front door unlocked type of thing. So there was that uh, two weeks sort on of that one. Yep, thank you. Yeah. Yep. Broughton Knox was always brilliant with handout people because he grew up in a rectory where his father was dealing with handout people during the depression. I was always, I mean, Broughton was such a funny fish in terms of these kinds of things. You, you would think he was so, so unsociable he wouldn't know what to do, etc. But he actually was very good at that, at that very thing. But it came from the depression years of growing up in the rectory at Glazeville. Oh yeah, very hard. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm moving along. But that's one of the big ones they all loved in rectory life. But I say, there are other things in rectory life too. All clergy children get the opportunity, I shouldn't say all, there's some here today who haven't, but all children, clergy children get the opportunity to uh, learn music. Most people don't. But whenever I meet a clergy, especially a daughter, I always say, oh, how far did you go on the piano? Oh, did you know I played the piano? <laughs> Are you a clergyman's daughter? You learnt the piano. <laughs> right? They all, they have that opportunity. Most people don't have that opportunity. They grow up in a house full of books. Most people don't. Yeah, <laughs> the books don't exist in libraries. They grow up in a, I mean, they grow up in an enriched educational, intellectual, musical environment which is which is really significant and important I think it just makes them different they grow up in going to camps and house parties our Ruth uh, her great joy in life is going to a house party she loves going to house parties because when she was a little girl she went to lots of house parties student work and you know what happened to the house parties where she went all these young lovely adults played with her and spoiled her and made her the centre of attraction. Of course she loves house parties. <laughs> so great joy and delight in staying at house parties. Okay, then I turn to the subject of problems. that right? Uh, what are the problems? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just having trouble following my own notes here for a moment. Let's go to the problems. There are three or four I'd draw your attention to. Firstly, expectations. It's their own expectations as much as anybody else's expectations laid upon them. And I think what we need to do as parents is help them manage their expectations. Many are their own expectations. Some are the expectations of the church people on them. Some are the expectations of their peers at school. You know, you don't do that, you're a minister's daughter, you know, that kind of thing. And some are their parents' expectations, though I think often it's the, their own expectations they project on the parents. Like they assume that you want them to be like this. When unstated expectations are the worst. And so you help them by bringing out their expectations into the open. You actually, let's 
however you can do it in your conversation, bring it out in the open so that what you really want of them or don't want of them, expect or require of them, is, is clear in discussion. Because it's the hidden ones which tyrannise them. Perfectionism, moralism, rather than the gospel of grace, <laughs> uh, is what they want. Uh, they've got to see it modelled in repentance and faith. I'm working with a lovely Korean man who's in his uh, third year of Moore College at the moment, uh, who's a clergy son, and uh, he, he, his testimony is fun. He's a very funny man. He gave a speech the other day on why we should be cannibals, which was brilliant. Uh, he's, he's full of fun. He's, he's a very interesting co. And he said that growing up, he thought Jesus was the ultimate tiger mother. Because Jesus was always there watching everything you did and criticising you for what you were doing wrong. And because within the parental framework, it was, oh, Jesus wouldn't approve of that. He wouldn't do that. No, that's not the thing Jesus did. That's not what Christians do. So he just saw Jesus as a tiger mum. And when he actually heard as a teenager about grace and forgiveness, he could not, he couldn't connect that to Jesus. It was just, this was a totally different Jesus. What he had to do was get rid of his Jesus in order to accept Jesus. Because, now, he's not critical of his mother. He honours his parents greatly. But it, it's just the framework in which you can easily raise your children as moralists. We actually try to raise them as mercy people, not moralists. Uh, We've got to be careful, therefore, to model repentance and forgiveness and the gospel and set that as the expectation rather than the expectation of being perfectly good children because we're not there. No, they're not going to be. They're sinners. Of course they're sinners. They're descended from you. Secondly, the twin problems I've got listed as the, the prodigal and the princess. Should I put those on the outline? Yes. Yeah, that's good. The prodigal and the princess. Now... The prodigal we understand fairly great, fairly clear, you can guess what that is. And there are so many children of clergy going off the rails and becoming drug addicts and pushers and prostitutes and whatever else it is. But because you've got to remember, one child reported is, is not the hundred that are not reported. I mean, it's like an aeroplane crash. You see an aeroplane crash and oh, it's very dangerous. There are thousands and thousands of aeroplanes flying here, there and everywhere and they don't crash. But the one crash story dominates the news. The one child that goes off the rail dominates the news. The hundred who have not gone off the rails, no one reports about. And in fact, it's kind of good that they still want to report about a clergy child going off the rails because that means the normality is they don't. Right? As long as they keep on reporting a bishop as a heretic, that's good news because that means some of the others aren't. Right? But when it becomes normal that bishops are heretics, well, then we really are. Well, we are, aren't we? However, anyway, <laughs> uh, Barna is a research company in America, and they've done some research on this subject. I found it, I googled away and found it. They found that 7% of clergy kids do go off the rails and give up the faith and live quite contrary to Christianity. And they also found that 7% of non-clergy kids do the same. Now there's no difference there, friends. It's just being parents at this stage. Being a clergy does not increase the chance of your children being off the rails. You don't need extra protection because they're clergy kids. Um, uh, but I also noticed in the report what the Barna people didn't notice. That is, that uh, 
the majority of those that went off the rails came from mainland, mainstream American denominations, Episcopal, Presbyterian and, Unite, and, and uh, Uniting. In other words, it was the children of liberal clergy who went off the rails. Um, whereas the Southern Baptists did not have the same statistics, for example. And so that even gave me further heart that it's, uh, it still can happen. Uh, no Christian parent wants it. We all pray against it. But it is the child's choice. We're not training dogs. We're training human sinful creatures who can choose to do what they want to do in their own time. So the pain of seeing it happen to someone so dear to you, please do not add beating yourself up over it at the same time. You don't need to beat yourself up as if, if only I'd done this, or if only done that, or if only done the... The child has to be responsible for the actions they're taking. You can lead the, the child in the right way, but the child makes the choice in the end. That's part of the, the difficulty of the process, the responsibility we have. That's part of why Helen and I don't like talking about child raising much, because our three children love the Lord Jesus and going ahead in the Lord, and we know, but there for the grace of God, our children could have easily gone off the rails too. You can't look at us and say, oh, you did all the right things all the way, whereas that family, they did the wrong things and look at their children have wound up. It doesn't work that way. The children make the choices in life and they are responsible. We can only teach and pray. But what about the princess? Well, this is one of the ones that most people don't know about, but... As a university chaplain for 30 years, I had clergy children coming to join us. And there were a certain number of them that were princesses. Never a prince, princesses. They would come saying, I'm really glad to be here and not to be known as the, you know, the minister's daughter. I'm going to find my own way as a Christian now, you see, because always everybody knew me as the, the vicar's daughter, but now I'm just, I'm a nobody, so I can be my own Christian person. And then they'd come to me a few months later and say, nobody pays any attention to me. <laughs> and they don't listen to what I've got to say. I know how to do this, but they won't listen to me because well, they don't know who I am. If they knew who I am, they'd listen to me. And I'd say, but you didn't want to be known as who you were. And they say, yeah, but, but they won't listen. And I say, well, welcome to the real world, princess. You know? and, this is... and then they would get really annoyed because other students would say, oh, have you heard what Philip said about this? Have you heard what Philip said about that? And they say, well, you should hear what my father says. My father knows more. My father's a great preacher. Have you heard about my father? And they would then hate Philip because their father was better than Philip but got no credit, whereas Philip got the credit and other people weren't willing to listen to their father. And they had grown up the princess of the parish. And they'd assumed that the way they were treated and lived had nothing to do with the fact that they were the vicar's daughter, although they knew that it was had to do with being the vicar's daughter. And when they were taken out of the parish, they were no longer the princess. And Prince Charming hadn't turned them into a queen. And they were a pain in the neck. <laughs> Mildly. And found it really difficult. Now, not all clergy daughters, but never a clergy son. I never met one clergy prince. But I did meet princesses over and over again and I loved them 
especially I love their loyalty to their fathers. I really thought this was terrific, you know, and I encouraged them like mad and told them, even if I didn't know their father, that their father was great. At least I had the evidence that they had a great daughter. So, that was a, so I was always for them in that regard, and I actually loved them, of course they did, and I hope my daughters were loyal to me like that too. But you do have to help them. <laughs> that, that they are not the centre of the universe. And that needs to be helped, I think, in the raising up of the child as well. But you need to be warned about it when they leave you. They might have a little bit more difficulty uh, because it doesn't turn out like they assumed it would because they have always been the princess uh, in the situation. Um, so there's the two groups of problems. The exact opposite, prodigals and the princess. Uh, thirdly, there's the other problem of the second generation children. Uh, that is, the old saying is the first generation preach the gospel, the second generation believe and assume the gospel, the third generation doubt the gospel, and the fourth generation deny the gospel. And you can see it in families, you know. I mean, Bob Hawke's grandfather was a keen evangelical, Bob Hawke's father was a, 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 a liberal evangelical, Bob Hawke was an agnostic, Bob Hawke's daughter's an atheist. There's four generations. But it never, you know, it does, I was going to say, it never works out like that. I've just shown you it does work out like that. It, it's generally more messed up than that. But the Christian kids, are, and especially the clergy kids, are the second generation kids. They're raised in a Christian bubble. They're naive about the world. Uh, and so therefore, sometimes they don't know how to connect with the world and to evangelise it because they've never really had non-Christian friends. And sometimes they're totally vulnerable to the world because they've never seen what the world had to offer before. And our protection of them has been too much. You guys put your children out into the world at 18. In city, we put them out into the world at 25 and then they come back and live with us till they're 30. But... Uh, sometimes it means they retreat into the bubble. Sometimes in their vulnerability they give themselves over to worldliness. Sometimes we give them alternative ways of succeeding, that is education or career or sport, which actually takes them away from Christianity, though that's not been our intention. But the downward spiral from the first generation through to the fourth generation happens at the second. And the key is they have to own Christianity for themselves and that's a struggle for them. The struggle of actually it's not just what dad and mum say, it's what I believe. If you're raised up in a context, Christian school, Christian home, homeschooling, you don't know what you do or don't believe for yourself and you're put into this real pressure and so they don't feel their sins forgiven and the joy of forgiveness because they've always known their sins forgiven and the joy of forgiveness and so they lack the passion to preach the gospel and so they move from preaching into assuming doubters in some ways this is less for clergy kids because we've always lived with preachers or they've always lived with preachers and not simply believers but in other words, it's harder for them because their expectations is you believe and preach only because your father's the minister. So are you going to become a minister because your father's a minister? 
I know with Matthew and I had long hard discussions I'm wanting him to tell me that he wants to become a minister me I'm waiting for him to tell me he's waiting for me to tell him he should so we didn't tell each other anything it's it's a tricky kind of relationship that you have I've just used Matthew as an illustration again Helen and I hardly ever uh, I hardly ever preach using my children as illustrations and some of the kids in my survey they complained about their parents using them as illustrations but some of them rejoiced in the fact that they were part of the family business some of them said it was a little difficult there's always assumed that we would be part of the family business letting them not be part of the family business while at the same time wanting them to be the heart that, that's a tricky isn't it it just is but it's not unique to clergy my father ran a little printing business I know how to fold paper I know how to collate paper I know how to staple things let me tell you if you're in a family which farming kid doesn't know how to do some chores around the farm I mean that's if you're just that's life uh, get over it you know but quite a few of them said well uh, you know I preach the gospel now because I was raised to preach the gospel and I laughed as I walked up here this morning I saw one of the older girls look after one of the little girls because she was about to walk into into a post and this older girl just guided her around and I thought there's a clergy daughter <laughs> she just knows not my sister nothing to do with me I just know how to look after other little kids because I was raised to and a lot of them said that's what we loved we didn't know it at the time, we didn't like it at the time, but we know how to serve people, we know how to look after people, we know how to treat guests into our home and things like that. And so there are real privileges in being a clergy kid, <coughs> massive privileges, with a few problems that you need to look out for, especially the princesses. Have you ever heard about the princesses before? No, no, it's... <laughs> My daughter's never a princess, but, uh, <laughs> but she did find it very difficult going to another church because life revolved around her father and ministry and he was a centre of things and she was not engaged in all the decisions but just everybody knew her. Yep. Uh, and so she found it a real struggle. She went to this church and not that people didn't know her so much, but she didn't know what was going on. Yes. And so she, um, yes. she sort of wasn't quite engaged as, as she had been before. Yep. So I got one comment said that. But yeah. what I used to like was, because everything was open in the family, I knew why church was doing what it's doing and how it was functioning. And when I left, I didn't know. And I, yes. But I loved it because I knew it was in the secrets. Yeah, it's hard to know how much to share, isn't it? Well, Helen and I shared fairly openly and freely in front of our kids what was happening in church life. Um, uh, the damage came uh, in denominational life. So the kids never minded knowing about the secrets and, and they were very good, they never blabbed. It was really, it was excellent. Uh, and there was, there's lots of love in the church that we were in at the time. Um, stress, strain and all the rest of it but love because we were at the St Matthias we were growing up, not the cathedral um, but uh, they were negatively affected by uh, synodical diocesan fights uh, where they saw their father being uh, uh, mauled and attacked and all that kind of thing they 
they did find that difficult uh, and have no great love of the denomination because of it. And I think if I'd known what I knew by the end, I, we might have kept that conversation out of our, our conversations. Um, but we didn't see any damage happening on the way through. Yeah. I'll, I'll finish, by the way, in case you're wondering what's happening. Oh, yeah, Rick. Um, it's helpful for our kids to understand what the expectations are. But as parents, parental expectations in the ministry house with kids' expectations, this I'm not sure how to kind of explain this, but an example is that when we were at Waniasa, we had Archbishop Harry Woodley come and stay with us. Uh, lovely man, lovely visit, but early in the morning, brother and sister fight, four-letter words are flung across the hallway loud enough for the Archbishop to hear. That was just the parents. They <laughs> 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 uh, that indicates what was happening in that person's home when they were because their expectations were not Janine's expectations. And it was helpful for us to learn some of those things as we thought about our expectations for our children. Um, they were just being children. Yeah. And um, I think sometimes we, as clergy, we've got to be careful that the way other people view what's happening in our house is not necessarily the expectations we should that's right and and it, yeah you rebuke the children at this stage and say you can't say that the archbishop's there huh? that's teaching him hypocrisy <laughs> I mean I can understand I can hear myself saying it <laughs> but it's actually the wrong thing to say isn't it at this point and uh, all you need to say to the Harry afterwards is oh, sorry about the yelling this morning and if he's a normal human Christian man he'll say yeah funny wasn't it and <laughs> It's almost exactly what he said. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's just, that's, that's life, isn't it? But we build up our moralistic expectations that are really unhelpful. Uh, thanks for the illustration of it. I think that's a, that's a good illustration because I find it hard to illustrate that one. I think it's a, it's a real issue. I, I spoke to a couple of the funny ones that we had for the kids. One was that they said, I hated the fact that we were always the last to leave. Standard Christian problem, that one, isn't it, for the kids? Hated it. But, but they said, Dad and Mum dad and Mum are now on long service leave and we're alone at home. And we noticed the other day at church, we were the last to leave, even though Mum and Dad weren't around anymore. <laughs> Which I thought was, yeah, good they sort the fun of it. And the other one said, I hated it when my dad used to go and take weddings all the time because I, I didn't want him to marry all these other women. I just wanted him to be married to my mum. You know? 
she said that's she wrote that because she said I can only think of it wasn't it wasn't our daughter it was somebody else's daughter she said I can only think of two negatives so I'll give you a third one and that was her third negative dad went and took all these married all these foreign women <laughs> we're raising children those of us who have grown up in rectories I guess in some ways it's easier to raise children in a rectory than those of us who never grew up in a rectory but it's never easy. Every kid's different. Every parent's different. Every father-mother connection's different. The cultures are different. we just got to Christianise what we do. Really Christianise what we do. And make the gospel centre of the home rather than our cultural expectations in the centre of the home. But the kids are better off raised in a rectory, I believe, than anywhere else. I think it's the finest place in the world to be raised uh, I think it's better than being raised on a farm and I was going to do it, I tried, it was hopeless I couldn't do it for you I was going to give you the list of famous people raised in rectories and infamous uh, but the list was vastly too long for me to be able to give it to you it just goes on and on and on um, uh, Mrs May Angela Merkel, the Lutheran father, uh, you know, prime ministers, presidents, Woodrow Wilson was raised, a, just disproportionately number of famous people have been raised in, in clergy homes. Quite disproportionate to the number of people have. Some infinitely bad people, you know, Billy the Kid, there are some really bad ones as well, but uh, just across the board, it's it's a great place for a kid to be raised and can I say just with a couple of days who have been here it's been fantastic to watch your kids and to watch you with the kids that are here I mean, that's a lovely bunch of kids running around here isn't it and I, I know some of the other people the tourists seeing all these children being walked down walked back etc and the baby boomers are really lamenting the fact they've got no grandchildren uh, we keep on having people roughly our age coming and talking to us about the fact they've only got grand-dogs. Grand you know, and when they hear we've got 13 grandchildren, they're, wow. Well, I don't think it's wow. My brother's got 25, you know. It's, it's, just, it's just Christian that you, you... We believe in children. We believe in people. We believe in families. It's just, you know, it's, it's a nothing to us. Actually, it's one of our strongest suits. Make most of it in the town. Make most of it in the ministry and uh, rejoice and be glad God given us children to love it's fantastic, it's wonderful brother, I've finished and you Thank promised you. me a promise and I'm making my promise and Thank you. you're going to get rid of these aren't yeah, you? yeah well I was just thinking um, you know uh, when you're talking about compassion and the second generation leaving that if only somebody would launch something for all those children who live excellent to help overcome that so um, now if you haven't taken 